Hi, welcome to the Physionic Podcast. My name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD student in molecular medicine, and I've been doing, this is especially important for this episode, I've been doing cell biology and molecular biology work for a number of years now in a lab, meaning that I've used viruses and I've used uh, cells and done a bunch of what I think is really cool molecular biology research along with many of my fellow classmates as we go through our PhD program. Now, the reason why I'm introducing this episode this way is because I, uh, I released a video literally two days ago, and it's sort of, at least by a scientific standard of topics on science, uh, it's blown up. It's become viral, if it, if you will. Uh, and the topic of the video was, is the COVID-19 coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, a man-made virus, implying potentially that it could be used as a biological weapon, that it is a biological weapon, that it was designed to be a biological weapon. And uh, it's blown, while I'm happy that the video has done well, uh, I had no intentions of it being a gathering of what seems like a, well, at least an incredibly vocal minority of conspiracy theorists that have flooded this particular video with um, many, many different iterations of different conspiracy theories. And some of them actually make no sense whatsoever, um, mainly because some of these individuals don't really understand how the science works. So when they're talking and they're kind of explaining their thought process, there's a lot of glaring issues in essentially what... Not necessarily the idea. The idea could could potentially be correct uh, if it were to stand on its own. But the 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 rationale for how they got to that idea, to that hypothesis, doesn't hold up uh, because it doesn't have scientific merit. So I thought, uh, although I'm sure that after this publishes, I'm sure there will be many many more conspiracy theories that are thrown out there. I'm sure they'll end up dismissing anything that I say in this podcast, but I wanted to take some time to discuss a few of the ones that I saw that were most prevalent that popped up a lot. And um, you'll have to excuse if I chuckle from time to time because uh, some of the ideas are so ludicrous that uh, I, I did laugh out loud. I did LOL when, when I read them because uh, they, they truly are pretty outlandish. Um, and others, I certainly, I don't have the expertise to say I can outright dismiss them. Uh, so those could be true, but the evidence still points to them not being true. Um, but again, just like in the video, I provided two pieces of information that offered evidence towards one line of thought and not towards any other line of thought. And what I found with these conspiracy theorists is that they're taking one of the pieces of evidence and just shooting that one down. But I've actually yet to have anybody rebut 
the second piece of evidence. Matter of fact, everybody's just ignored it uh, after they've heard the first one. I don't know if people just went crazy after hearing the first piece of evidence. And I'll go over those two pieces of evidence in just a second. But uh, it does seem like people just went with that first piece of evidence. They're like, okay, we could debunk this, quote unquote, debunk this. And then uh, then we can just move forward and say that uh, this is a scientific propaganda uh, piece. But like I said, I thought it'd be fun to go over some of these conspiracy, conspiracy theories. So uh, let's jump into it. First, I'll give you a bit of background on what I said in that video. Uh, in case you haven't, if you're on the podcast exclusively, um, the first line of evidence, and again, the question was, is COVID-19 a man-made virus? So the first piece of evidence was that uh, although, so a virus has to have uh, a way to enter a cell. So we're exposed to viruses all the time. And it's not an issue because they can't enter our cells. So they just kind of bounce out and bounce around outside of the inside of the cell. And then they die off because they need a host to be able to propagate themselves, to be able to, to spread, to create more copies and then end up shedding and uh, causing a lot more vi viruses to, to be created. And so in most cases, that's not an issue. However, you have the occasional virus that does affect humans, or in, and it might affect other animals as well. Uh, and it has to have a particular piece of that virus that allows entry into the cell. So for COVID-19, what they found is that <clears throat> it attaches to, and by they, I mean this Nature paper, as well as uh, several studies that they investigated, uh, Nature being a biological journal, one of the most reputable in the world. Uh, what they published is that uh, this virus, COVID-19, will attach to what's known as an ACE receptor on human cells, uh, specifically on epithelial cells within the lungs. Uh, but I imagine that's probably true of other cells as well, although I, I haven't looked into that myself. But obviously the way that it's most detrimental is by impacting the lungs. So this protein, this piece of the virus is known as a spike protein. And there's a particular section of that spike protein known as a receptor binding domain. And that is made up of, or at least the particular section is made up of six amino acids. So if you know anything about proteins, you know that when you're consuming proteins, you're essentially consuming uh, these structures of amino acids. It's just a bunch of amino acids that make up a protein. Well, while that gets digested and it gets broken up into their constituent parts, their amino acids, I've said this many times before, uh, and it enters the bloodstream and it gets dispersed and sent into different cells based on need, uh, those amino acids are then reused during protein synthesis to create more proteins. So a virus is the exact same way. Um, that's essentially what a virus is trying to do once it it doesn't actually have its own protein synthetic machinery in most cases uh, but it uses the cell's protein synthetic machinery known as ribosomes to then produce 
these proteins that would be like the spike protein or be able to create the, the, the capsid or, you know, there are a bunch of different components to a virus. Actually, not a whole lot, but there's, there's a few different components to a virus. So specifically with this spike protein at this receptor binding domain, it binds to, believe it or not, a receptor known as ACE in human cells, or really on the surface of human cells. And ACE is angiotensin converting enzyme. And it's not really all that important what ACE does, at least based off of my limited reading that I've done, uh, other than it's a blood pressure regulator. Uh, it's part of the um, angiotensin renin system. Uh, you can look at that if you want to look at, you know, different physiological systems. They control blood pressure, control other areas of our body, just homeostasis in general. But what's really important here is that the virus can bind to this ACE receptor, and then it ends up finding its way into the cell based on this uh, binding to the ACE receptor. So the evidence <clears throat> that I was talking about in this video is, and again, based off of this nature paper, I'm not just making this stuff up, uh, unless, of course, you, you think that the virologists that did the review are making things up, which certainly, if you believe that, go for it. Um, the evidence is that this receptor binding domain has a high affinity for this ACE receptor in human cells, on human cells. So that means that the receptor will bind the ACE receptor quite tightly. So it'll, you know, once it's stuck to it, it's, it's really stuck to it. It's not just going to dissociate from it and pull away from it and then have the, the virus float away, which happens with a lot of other viruses. If they have a low affinity or no affinity for a particular receptor, they might bump into the receptor, nothing's going to happen, or it might attach for a little bit and then just dissociate off again. So um, with a high affinity, that means that it's going to be stuck on there and then it's going to get into the cell. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't dissociate, it can. Uh, but the interesting part about, and the evidence was that although it does bind tightly to this ACE receptor. It actually doesn't bind ideally. So it's um, there's a old method of thinking about this, kind of a lock and key method, which is a little bit dated at this point. But in this way, you can think of an ideal scenario. So you can have a key that will open the door, but it's kind of clunky. You know, you really have to jam it in there and make sure that it fully turns and all that. And the, the, the teeth of the key don't quite fit perfectly. So that would be a high affinity uh, receptor binding domain. However, if you have a perfectly crafted brand new key that slides into the lock really well and it turns exceptionally well, very smoothly, that would be an ideal binding domain. So with this ideal binding, then that means that the virus would be more efficient, meaning that if more virus or individual virus particles uh, attach to the cell, then more of them will be able to enter the cells. And therefore, you're going to have less or, if any, uh, dissociation of that virus from, from the cell. So that is some evidence right there, because uh, most likely, if you were to create a virus, you would want to create one that has an ideal receptor binding domain so that it can kill uh, more people.
in a really gruesome uh, uh, way of looking looking at life. If you're creating a biological weapon, that's essentially what you want uh, in most cases. Now, I'll well, actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and address some of them. So, one of the criticisms of that is. Uh, People, a lot of people, a lot of people have said that maybe they made it less efficient to mask the fact that it's human made. So uh, maybe they did. Uh, you know, I, I don't really have much of an argument against that. But in all reality, what if think of a scenario where uh, the virus has had mutated to be uh, an ideal configuration? then what would we be saying in that situation? We'd be saying the exact same thing we're saying right now. So it seems like we're dismissing the fact that it's not ideal just because we want to believe something. We want to believe that it's human-made. And uh, certainly we can do that. I'm not, uh, you know, in the video, by the end of it, I say that, you know, a lot of this, uh, all this evidence is circumstantial and it's really a lot of... Um, there is certainly some opinion that's associated to it, but the second piece of evidence is certainly stronger, I think, in certain regards to, to make sure that it's uh, deemed less of a human-created uh, virus, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a bit. But again, I, I didn't really get much pushback on the second piece of evidence, so really everything centers around this concept of the receptor binding domain. So people can say, yeah, sure, I mean, maybe the scientists were intelligent enough to, to make sure that it wasn't an ideal configuration for that, uh, for <clears throat> the ACE receptor. And that's could very well be true. Uh, but again, if that ends up being true, uh, you could also say that if the scientists had created an ideal, then of course everybody would be jumping on that. I mean, that would be like clear evidence, it seems like, that this is, uh, and I'm saying that slightly sarcastically, um, that that's clear evidence that then this is a biological weapon. So really there's no there's no way to, to there's, it's like win-win for a person who wants to believe that this is a biological weapon. If it had a, a really poor... Uh, affinity for this ACE receptor, then we wouldn't be even talking about this. This wouldn't be much of an issue because it wouldn't be infecting that many people and it'd just be over. Um, so it's a, it's a lose-lose situation for anybody that wants to look at this from just a purely scientific standpoint. So the other issue or the other piece of evidence was that there's a real good circumstantial evidence. And uh, somebody accused me of being a politician because I said the word circumstantial or the, the series of words circumstantial evidence, uh, which uh, gave me a good chuckle. But the, the circumstantial evidence was that it just so happens that two animals were in close proximity with one another at the Wuhan uh, market, wet market. And these two animals have known coronaviruses that affect both of these species, uh, the pangolin and, which if you don't know what a pangolin is, I'd look it up. I had no idea myself. Um, and the second one being a bat, which is something that at least originally when this first uh, hit, you know, globally, 
uh, the coronavirus hit globally that everybody was talking about the, the bat being the one, right? The, the big thing. Oh, why would people eat bats? Well, I'm not here to, to judge on a person's culture. If, if you want to consume bats, then, you know, by all means, that's, that's your prerogative. However, uh, when they're in such close proximity with one, especially when they're alive, um, the bats and the pangolin, <clears throat> the bats have a particular coronavirus that has is 96% identical to the human coronavirus that we're dealing with now. So this is good evidence right there, but there is a missing link there that the bat coronavirus actually doesn't have the appropriate receptor binding domain to get into human cells or to bind tightly to human cells. So that sort of creates this issue of, well, you kind of have to have that. Um, so what happened? Um, so what's believed to have happened because when we trace a pangolin coronavirus, it actually does have that spike protein that is uh, incredibly similar to the human uh, spike protein that we're, we're seeing in, um, in the human coronavirus. So most likely what's happened Again, this is just, this is certainly speculation, don't get me wrong, um, but what probably happened is that these two viruses ended up mixing, and you, you had to have some extra mutations as well, and then what emerged was a virus, the COVID-2, or COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus ended up emerging out of that, and then it, it only had to infect one person. So once it infected that one person, and the incubation period was such a long time, and um, the fact that it could be spread uh, once it's, especially when it's been aerosolized, uh, you know, when you sneeze or cough or anything like that, and it can also be spread if you, you know, touch your mouth or touch your nose, um, there are a number of different ways that it can be transmitted. That gave some good evidence that uh, it, it could have been uh, created at this wet market. Uh, now, in the video, I also mentioned, and this is the thing that nobody has discussed. I mean, it just seems it's almost like if I can take a, a leaf out of a conspiracy theorist book uh, to, to, to see these two animals that we know have extreme similarity to <clears throat> the coronavirus that we're dealing with now, the human coronavirus. It's, it's funny to me to, to dismiss that point uh, when they're so close to one another. Like we know they were really close to one another. And we know this kind of stuff does happen because it's happened in the past. Unless, of course, we assume that all viruses ever uh, have been <clears throat> man-made, which would be quite a bold claim. I don't know how many people you'd be able to convince on that one. <clears throat> so ultimately, uh, those were the two pieces of information that there were, uh, there were a few others, but those were kind of the two main ones that they discussed in that review. And as, as we study this more, I'm sure we'll get, we'll get even more information on, you know, where, how did this come to be and things of that nature. Maybe a lab will try to re-emulate how this, uh, coronavirus is able to, to be created using the pangolin coronavirus and using the, uh, bat coronavirus, which is a, point of discussion by a lot of conspiracy theorists of why sh why would we use viruses 
but I'll get to that in just a second. I did acknowledge in the video that it's also possible that it's escaped from a lab. Um, and although I haven't done much in-depth research into this, my understanding is that in the Wuhan, uh, that there is a laboratory in Wuhan. I think it's the only laboratory or one of the few that are BSL-4, meaning the highest level of biosafety that scientists use. And those are typically used for incredibly dangerous uh, viruses or to study incredibly dangerous viruses. And it is possible, um, although I mentioned that this, there have been viruses that have escaped from BSL-2 laboratory, so a lower level of security, lower level of safety, um, that it's possible that the virus may have escaped right from, from a, a laboratory in Wuhan and then ended up transmitting to, to a person or transmitting to several people and then going from there. So is that a possibility? Yeah. And in that case, then maybe you could argue that it was man-made, but was it purposefully man-made to be a biological weapon? My argument is still no, um, mainly because, well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is you'd probably want it to be as efficient as possible, especially with such a long incubation period. Uh, you'd want it to be uh, extremely efficient in terms of, well, killing cells and killing people. Uh, if you want to use it as a biological weapon. Another point being that uh, if one of the extreme dangers of a biological weapon or really any virus in general or bacteria or, you know, prion, whatever you end up wanting to use, um, is that if it's highly infectious, if the exposure rate, and I have a video on this as well, um, if you have... Uh, you need very low exposure to get infected by this virus or whatever the pathogen ends up being. Uh, the problem with that is that it's not controllable. So once it's out, it's out. Uh, it's really difficult to control. As a matter of fact, at the publishing of this podcast, I mean, the United States is having a lot of trouble. China had to go through some extreme measures. Um, Italy's going through the ringer right now, and many, many other countries are, are going through some serious issues because uh, this, this virus is so difficult to contain because of that incubation period uh, specifically and the fact that it can stay asymptomatic for, for quite some time. So those are, it, it would be incredibly nonsensical for let's say, let's say from like a Chinese perspective, let's say the Chinese government wanted to create this weapon and then they purposefully release it and they create this thing purposefully and then they release it um, in the public. There's, there's, a, there's an extreme danger to those public officials, to those government officials, I should say government officials, uh, because no matter what precautions you take, if you have this incredibly contagious virus that's spreading all over the place, I mean, you, you can't necessarily say that you're not going to get it. There's a decent chance you're going to get it. Um, so that would be probably something that you would want to consider. Um, on the other hand, if it's really, you know, released by the United States, well, as we could see, that didn't, that didn't work out either because now it's in the United States and it's killing a lot of people in the United States. So either way, my point being that it spreads 
and it's going to spread in unpredictable ways in certain way in certain regards. So to release that and cause mass ha- havoc, uh, you know, maybe it's affecting the economy, and it certainly is, or you know, whatever it might be. I think somebody mentioned that it's the the one percent, you know, create this for against the 99% or something along those lines. Well, uh, again, the, the risk is still there for the 1%. Uh, they, they, you know, a virus doesn't decide, oh, you make a billion dollars a year? Okay, I'll, I'll leave you alone. Um, no, once you have it, you, you know, there's no medicine out there that is being, although there's, okay, let me finish my thought. There's no medicine out there that's being given to the 1% that's not being given to the 99%. It's not like, you know, scientists are holding this stuff back, which, of course, if you are at a whole nother level of conspiracy theory, you probably think that. You probably think that um, that the entire scientific field is holding back all this information and only keeping it, and maybe we're sending it out to, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like some crazy way of going about things. Uh, Maybe we we have a set email list that we we only update to the you know if you make a billion dollars you can be part of the email list but if you're only making five hundred and fifty million dollars a year nah you're not good enough um, or if you make you have to make ten million or more or something along those lines and then everybody else is just screwed uh, maybe you think that i don't know i you know that's so far out of my scope of expertise and it's um it's it's kind of a dangerous thought process because at that point you can literally just make up anything and uh and you'll you'll get nowhere you'll just be spinning your wheels just screaming out at an empty empty uh, chamber but let me let me address something that I, I briefly touched on. So why use viruses? Uh, why? I mean, a lot of people have mentioned uh, that labs use viruses. I've even, in the comments section, I even mentioned that uh, I've used viruses before. And there's good reason for that. It's not, <laughs> we aren't just sitting in our labs just plugging away at this, trying to make a virus to kill people. Oh, the evil scientists and their, their green goo everywhere that's bubbling up and our hair's all frizzy and we're, we're trying, to, <laughs> trying to wreak havoc in the world. Uh, we use viruses because uh, it makes sense to use viruses. I mean, think about how infectious a virus is. If you can manipulate a virus to... Uh, to hold the genetic information that you want to use. And I use this example uh, in my comment. Uh, so I think, I believe somebody asked why, why would people use viruses or, you know, what would be a reason? And the answer is because we can manipulate the virus so we can use what the virus is good at. So keep that. And this doesn't have to be for humans. It can be used for, you know, cells from, uh, rats or whatever. And just as a quick point, somebody mentioned scientists just inject it into humans and then let them go out. Like, no, no, <laughs> no, which of course you're not going to believe me, but no, that's not, that's not what we do. <laughs> oh. 
I would, I would, I would die laughing after I stopped this person. If I saw somebody just running, <laughs> running around with a syringe, just injecting people <laughs> with a virus that they created. Uh, <laughs> but so no, we don't inject into people. Uh, maybe in the future we will. And I think actually, uh, in cutting edge research, we have, uh, I believe it was to treat glaucoma or something like that. They had figured out a way to genetically engineer. So let me explain that. That's essentially what I'm trying to talk about. So scientists do t use viruses because, uh, viruses are able to get into cells, right? So that's what they're good at. And once they enter the cell, then they, they, essentially integrate their DNA and it depends on the type of virus. I'm not, I believe coronavirus is a RNA bound, uh, type of virus. So this wouldn't necessarily hundred percent apply. Um, that releases RNA and then RNA is then translated through protein synthesis of the ribosomes, uh, into the actual proteins to, that make up the, the, the virus. However, for, with a lot of viruses, you have the release of DNA. And then that means that you have this, uh, the trans, the, uh, transcription process to RNA. And then from there, from RNA to proteins to make the virus. So it's an extra step or two that, that they go along in, in that process. So we can use that information. I mean, that's, it's, it's biologically available. It's right there. We have this efficient way of manipulating cells. So, you know, the way I've used it is if I've got like a Petri dish with a bunch of cells in it and I want to change these cells to do something special. So if I want to fluoresce a protein, if I want to, uh, yeah, if I want to fluoresce a protein and I want to look at it under a microscope and actually have that fluorescence show up and show up in, in particular areas of the cell, uh, that would be an example. You would, you know, obviously normally your cells don't just randomly fluoresce proteins. So in that regard, then you could use a virus that has the DNA inside of it to fluoresce proteins. Um, it's essentially a tag. It's called a green fluorescent protein or red fluorescent protein or yellow fluorescent. I mean, any color in that, in that wavelength to, to emit that color, you can put that into a virus. And then you just put it on the cells, you know, the virus itself. And then that's called, um, there's all kinds of different names for it. I think people use them kind of interchangeably. I think the proper one is transduce, uh, but I like transfect because it's like infection, right? You're infecting the cells, which you are. Um, so, so you add the virus and then the virus, some of the virus, depending on how efficient it is, right, at getting into cells, uh, will get into cells, and sometimes the cells will actually reject the virus. It'll be able to recognize it. And um, through processes like autophagy, I'm sure you've heard of that before, if you're somewhat clued into the science field. So um, with autophagy, then we can, the cells can sometimes eliminate a virus. So it's kind of an internal immune system. Uh, but assuming it doesn't do that, some of your cells will express that particular uh, DNA, have that, that viral DNA within them. But instead of creating more virus, you're just adding the DNA to uh, that cell just to fluoresce this protein. So, it's, so you've essentially made it inert. The, the virus doesn't have the capacity to continue to replicate and replicate and replicate. Um, you're just adding enough to get some of it into each cell or as many cells as you as you can and then from there 
uh, you, you just let the cells split, they divide. And then suddenly you have more cells that have this viral DNA up until a point where you have enough cells and you can just look at them under a microscope and track a protein. And there's a lot more that goes into that, don't get me wrong. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of a, a bird's eye view of how we go about using a virus, why we would use a virus. Um, because they're designed, they're, they're, they've been around for such a long time. They're really good at what they do. So why not use that as opposed to trying to outsmart biology or outsmart nature? Uh, in certain cases, we do come up with our own systems, but usually uh, we try and base that off of something that's already highly efficient, like a virus. Uh, yeah, so then another complaint that I, so that's a reason why we use viruses, and I'm actually going to touch on that a little bit more in just a second. So some, a lot of people have been sending me videos from this particular person that I'm not going to mention, uh, but I decided, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying, I'm I'm not infallible, uh, and I'm a scientist. I'm also curious, so if a person has an alternative perspective that they want to throw at me, then I'm I'm happy to consider it. Um, so I ended up checking out a few of these videos, and it turned out to be this one person. Uh, again, I'm not going to mention mention them, um, but and I'm sure you could figure it out if you if you went to the video. But this individual uh, is talking about what caused. Uh, you know, they, they were making the argument that the coronavirus COVID-19 is a biological weapon. And uh, the, first, the first thing that I have to say, and not to discount anyone's opinion, but, well, let me just say this on a straight, like kind of factual basis or more of a straight edge basis. And then I'm going to add a little opinionated flavor to it. This person is a professor of law. Let me repeat that, is a professor of law. And they are speaking on complex biological matters. And people seem just convinced by this person who has spent a career studying law and is classically trained in law. You have to understand <laughs> that is pretty insulting to a biologist. I'm not, I don't have my PhD, uh, at least not yet. I'm hoping that I will earn it over time. Uh, but just take me out of the equation. Talk about all these other scientists, especially uh, experts in viruses, virologists, or immunologists. Uh, you realize how incredibly insulting it is to, to tell somebody, hey, check this video out or check this out because I think they're right and you're wrong. And first off, this, this, it, it's, it's, it's like somebody going to your work and let's say you are, let's say you're a plumber and a, I'm trying to think of something, let's say a scientist shows up and decides to start telling you how to do your job uh, because they, and they start educating you on the thing that you are trained in and you've been doing for, let's say 15 years of your life and you're really good at it and you understand the ins and outs of everything about it. That's, that's pretty insulting. Uh, so I think that that's, I'm not saying 
I'm definitely not saying that everyone's opinion shouldn't be heard. But when you're talking about really complex things, it's, it's definitely worthwhile to at least consider a person's classical education. And that's, again, I'm, and I'm definitely not saying you can't educate yourself. You can. I fully believe in that. <clears throat> However, I will say the one thing, I've been in school for such a long time at this point, I will say that one thing that a classical education does do is it gives you format. It gives you structure in how to integrate many ideas across an entire entire field into boxes so that you can actually access them and understand them correctly the way that they should be understood. Uh, should in terms of, you know, understanding what a cell membrane is and not just then jumping off and understanding what uh, a, a phospholipid is. You know, it's, it's structured in that uh, you have an understanding of, okay, I need, to, I need to explain something on an organ level. All right, let's take the organ. Okay, now I, I need to go a little deeper. I can now explain things on a cellular level. Okay, now I can understand things on a molecular level. Okay, now let's go to the atomic level. Like being able to continue to zoom in and having that breadth of knowledge, that is something that a person who's classically trained is going to be really good at, you would hope as long as they're interested in their subject. So, and that's, I would imagine that's absolutely true of any profession, especially, I mean, that can be something that you work with your hands or something that's more theoretical, like professorship. But um, I, I would certainly, I, not to say that I wouldn't ask questions of a person who's, let's say, if you... Uh, have an oven that needs to be fixed and you, you know you have a person that comes in and they're working on it like to ask them questions be like oh well, like what went wrong like can you explain this to me and all like being curious and learning and you know maybe pushing back and be like oh well why was i you know it seemed like this was the issue uh why don't you think it's this issue that's fine um but to just outright discount a person's uh, opinions just because they don't agree with yours, even though they have mass amounts of training that's way beyond a single video's worth or even a week's worth of discussion. Uh, you know, every single day, those people are thinking about their topic every day. I mean, that's what makes them tick. So to, to say, oh, check out <laughs> a a lawyer or a, a, somebody who's trained in law, I mean, it's like people attaching one of my videos to this person and saying, hey, uh, check out Nick's video on law. I mean, I would be embarrassed. I, I, I would have to humble myself to that person because uh, I understand that they know so much more than I do. Uh, again, though, I'm not discouraging people from from speaking out and being curious and having some pushback, certainly. Uh, don't take an expert's word just at surface level. 
continue to ask questions, continue to probe and see if they can kind of go into detail with a lot of these things. Cause there's certainly people that are just like, eh, they just kind of wave their hands around. And, uh, you know, I'm at that point in certain respects myself and I'm hoping, you know, I'm continue to, to deepen my knowledge in all these different areas, but I digress. This person has a degree in law and then this person was talking about evidence that this coronavirus is a uh, biological weapon. And one of their chief pieces of evidence was that it is a gain of function mutation. So they cited a paper and they showed the sentence where the people said, this is, you know, this particular aspect of the virus is a gain of function mutation. And then this person uh, ended up saying, well, that is evidence that it is a biological weapon. That is not evidence at all. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it's clear to me that this person doesn't understand what a gain of function mutation is. It's just the greater expression of a gene or the a, a particular mutation uh, that leads to greater expression of a gene. Uh, or a change in a gene that ends up leading to a betterment in a protein uh, or some functional aspect of something, some biological unit, in this case, a virus, right? So it makes it more efficient at this particular thing. However, this happens all the time. Um, and as a matter of fact, it doesn't just happen in a lab. That's another myth that needs to be dispelled. And I don't even understand why it needs to be dispelled because it's so clearly obvious. Um, a gain of function mutation or any mutation, loss of function mutation is the opposite where you lose the function of a particular gene or a protein is absolutely a natural phenomenon. It does happen in real life. It happens without any sort of scientific intervention. Uh, this, the idea that mutations aren't natural or that they're, they're not part of the biological process independent of science is just, is ridiculous. It's not true at all. Uh, so citing that gain of function, that specific gain of function mutation as evidence that that this is a biological weapon, that it's man-made in any regard, even if it's not specifically towards a biological weapon. That's not to say that it can't be. It certainly can. Again, I'm trying to toe this line because I'm not being definitive about, I'm not saying, oh, this is definitely not man-made. But the, the most of the evidence points towards it's not. At least at the point of this publishing, most of the evidence points to it's not. Uh, as again, as we know more, we will end up having a clearer and clearer image of that. So, but a gain of function is definitely something that can happen. And in certain regards, it's part of the evolutionary process. And please don't end up commenting, oh, I don't believe in evolution and all that stuff. Um, that's a whole nother discussion that we can get into some other time. But it is part of an evolutionary process. Well, let's just say it's part of a growth process. It's part of the human condition. It's part of the entire biological condition. Um, so why some people, 
I don't know, let's say, let's say some people put on muscle mass really easily. Let's, let's say that. That could be due to a gain of function mutation. Like you have a mutation in mTOR or something along those lines. And I'm not going to go into all the, the details of that. But, and then that ends up leading this person to be able to put on muscle really quickly or really well. Um, that's not, again, it's not something that's done in a lab. It can be, but it's not proof. It's not like this, it's not eliminating all the confounding variables and then saying, oh, gain of function clearly means it's a biological weapon and that it's been man-made. It's just not. It's completely factually inaccurate to say that. Um, another piece of evidence that this mentioned, this person mentioned is another paper that the coronavirus or a coronavirus was being studied uh, at the University of North Carolina, I believe, Chapel Hill. And uh, full disclosure, if you end up looking up where I am, I'm in North Carolina right now, not in Chapel Hill, but in North Carolina. So if you want to spin that into a conspiracy theory, go for it. Um, And that this lab was looking at coronaviruses and looking at uh, and ended up s- was trying to use different proteins to manipulate uh, coronaviruses or just viruses in general. But um, certainly in this regard, we're talking about coronaviruses. And the second to last author of the paper talking about this was a researcher out of drumroll Wuhan. Uh, so this person was a Wuhan researcher and was published on this paper, which was is clear evidence, no doubt, and no sarcasm applied to the sentence or statement whatsoever, that uh, clearly North Carolina and Wuhan are in cahoots trying to create this virus. Um, or... I think they ended up saying that Wuhan bought the materials or the virus from North Carolina and uh, ended up potentially using it, manipulating it further. Uh, And you have to understand that if you're the second to last author on a paper, first off, I mean, first off, just if you're the second to last author on a paper, you had extremely minor contributions to this paper. So the majority of the paper is actually created by the first author, maybe the second author, and then the final author, which is the usually the senior author of the paper. Those are the people that added the most to it. And uh, you might even go as far as some people may not even know much of the content of the paper if they are a middle author. You should know all the content of the paper because your name's on it. But if you're the second to last author, you you're probably you're probably the least contributing member of the team. So the majority of the paper was produced by uh, people that are strictly in the University of North Carolina system. So that's something to consider. Another thing to consider is that just because <laughs> just because there's an affiliation, I mean, that, that assumes that people in Wuhan just can never do any research on viruses whatsoever. And not to mention that this individual that made this video or makes these videos, this law professor that I'm talking about, um, they ended up mentioning that Wuhan has the only, I don't know, I haven't actually checked up on this, the only BSL-4 laboratory. Well, 
just by the nature of the fact that they have a BSL-4 laboratory uh, they're, and they're the only one in China, that's pretty strong evidence just on that alone that they're going to be working on viruses. So is it that shocking that they were working on viruses? Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, so them being published on a paper on viruses, even if it's a coronavirus, just doesn't matter. I mean, it's just like the nature of why would you have a BSL-4 laboratory and not use it? Uh, that's that's just kind of a ridiculous argument in, in, in my eyes. Again, I'm not saying that it couldn't have happened. It could have happened that they created it in the BSL-4 laboratory and released it out to the public, killing trying to kill as many of their own people, but also killing like other people in other countries. I mean, if you want to spin it that way, I guess I've got two more things. The one thing, speaking on that some more, why would you create or work on a virus as dangerous as the coronavirus or uh, Ebola or, you know, whatever it might be? And a lot of people have been saying, oh, we need to shut down these laboratories. And, you know, that's an argument for another time. But these scientists, and just because they're working on these viruses, doesn't mean that they are trying to cultivate a biological weapon. Uh, like I mentioned, we use viruses to do good, to try and treat patients, to try and do uh, other things that aren't destructive, that are incredibly helpful. But even beyond that, I mean, if you're looking at something that's really lethal and you're trying to create different viruses that uh, may be lethal for whatever reason, in certain cases, you're just trying to investigate to see what ways, what kind of therapeutics, how can you come up with a solution ex post facto, after the fact, uh, to a virus strain that has uh, attacked the entire globe, uh, how can you come up with antivirals if you don't have the virus around uh, to actually study it, to study its receptors, to receptor binding domains, its spike proteins, its capsid? How does it enter the cell? Is it RNA bound? Like all these kinds of questions, you, you can't just defeat, quote unquote, defeat a virus and then just keep your hands off of it and just say, well, okay, we defeated it by social isolation, quarantine, things of that nature. And we'll just hope that a worse one doesn't come around. Sometimes you do have to actually study it. Uh, that's why they take these extreme precautions because they need to know if, if it were to mutate in particular ways, how would we combat it? How, how, what drugs can we create that would end up blocking that particular mutation or block the virus from entering the cells, making it inert. So that's a, a huge reason as to why you might want to study a virus or just, again, just keeping it around, even if you're not going to be making these mutations, just to study how it actually entered the cells to learn more about it so that we can have more information. So if something ends up mutating, uh, in another regard that we're not aware of, uh, and it starts spreading across the population, maybe we can look at this other piece that stayed intact about the previous virus before it mutated, and maybe we can target that and it'll slow the spread, or maybe it'll slow, slow the infection or stop the infection. Um, you know, antivirals are certainly really difficult to create, but even so, uh, the only way to have a shot at creating them is by you need to study the virus. 
like itself. You can't have a fake little virus over here and just pretend that this is it. Uh, you, you need to be in the front lines, essentially, scientific front lines uh, looking at, at this virus. So in that regard, that's a reason why you have scientists that do pretty dangerous work, in all honesty. I know there's a lot of precautions and whatnot, and I mean, pretty insane precautions, but well, I shouldn't call them insane, strict per- precautions, uh, but they're necessary. They're needed. Uh, that's that's what we need uh, for, for that to to be done as safely as possible while still getting that benefit of studying viruses so that we can combat them in the future. Again, as a conspiracy theorist, I'm sure you could probably easily say, well, sure, but then that also means that there are labs out there that are trying to create these biological weapons. I don't have a rebuttal against that. Could be, Uh, but I'm pretty certain that academic laboratories are not trying to create these biological weapons. They're studying it for medicine, medical purposes. So uh, that's another topic. And the final thing that I wanted to quick cover is that somebody commented, this is 100% man-made, no mutations whatsoever. Uh, Okay, Uh, I mean, man-made viruses are created uh, by mutagenesis. We create mutations. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, so we change the DNA. We we can um, manipulate all these different factors about a virus. And a lot of that is done by a process called mutagenesis, where you are generating, that's what the term means, generating mutants. You're cr- generating mutations. And then you're selecting for the mutations that uh, end up being favorable to what you want. And then you continue that process. So uh, there are definitely mutations in a man-made sense. And shockingly, just like I explained, uh, and I'm being sarcastic about the shockingly part, there are mutations in nature. That's how we exist. We are here because of mutations. We're different, we're unique, we're incredible uh, because of mutations. Mutations aren't all bad. <laughs> they, they can be very positive. Uh, they, they're, they're indiscriminate. They're not deciding, well, we're mutations, we have to be bad. Uh, so it happens. It's a lot of the things that we do in a lab are similar to the things that happen in nature. We just speed up the process by using our brain, our intellect to to specify how we want nature to uh, mutate or change or whatever. And even then we, we have, uh, you know, it's not incredibly exact. As our technology gets better and better and better, uh, we can make things more and more exact. A good example of this would be, you may have heard of CRISPR. So that's an example of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is an example of doing some of those mutations, uh, changing some things in the genome to to make it more uh, specific. So hopefully that answers a bunch of questions for, you know, at least the most common questions that I saw. Uh, Certainly if you believe a certain thing and you're steadfast, like I know some people said, it's 100% man-made, I don't care what anybody tells me. Well, in that case, I mean, you've just thrown science just straight out the window it doesn't seem to matter. Like if you're confronted with new information or an explanation to old information that makes more sense, it's kind of pointless. I'm not trying to reach you. 
Uh, so uh, be sure to leave a dislike on this this video or this podcast episode and keep uh, spreading whatever you want to spread. Um, however, for those individuals that were kind of on the fence, hopefully this offered some sort of a, an understanding, a basis, uh, so that you do feel a little more comfortable with what's going on. And even if you disagree with certain aspects, you know, that's cool. I'd, I'd be happy to, to discuss them with you. So if you, if you want to comment, um, I'm, I'm going to be polite. You know, I'm, I'm going to try and understand where you're coming from, and then I'm going to uh, see if I agree or disagree. And uh, we'll have polite discourse. But beyond that, for everybody else, hopefully this was at least informative that you got something out of this. <laughs> that, and maybe you just understood how viruses are studied or, you know, how virology works on a kind of a surface level. Uh, you know, I'd have to get an expert that's actually a virologist on here to, to eventually speak. And I do have friends that are in, in immunology, so maybe I'll contact some of them. And we can end up having discussions on this kind of stuff uh, in even more detail than what I've explained here. Okay, well, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope I have the pleasure of speaking with you in the next one. Have a good one.